You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you've been with us at all uh, over the last month, you'll know that we've been in this sermon series we're calling The Mothers of Jesus. We've been looking at these five surprising women that are named in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter one. It's surprising that there are women at all, but especially these particular women, all of whom were women in some ways who were on the outside. And it's good news for us uh, that they were included in the family tree of Jesus. Um, you might be wondering, you know, why, why would we do this? Why, why in this season of, you know, cheer, Christmas cheer, would we be looking at these really heavy stories uh, that show up in, in this genealogy. Um, you know, this is one of the ways that the church actually lives at odds with the world at this time of year. As December is full of cheer and happy music, the, the church is still in Advent. And Advent is the season of waiting and longing for God to come into this world of disappointment and suffering and sorrow and pain and to make things whole and right again. And so in some ways, there's nothing better in Advent that we could do than look at actual people, real women, who were in disappointment and suffering and struggle and sorrow and pain and looked in hope and waited for God to make things right and to bring healing for them. And so they put us in touch with our own longing, our own waiting, as we wait with hope. Our preacher this morning is Nan Clark, um, our wonderful pastor for Care Ministries, who we're so grateful for. Um, You probably noticed that um, most of the sermons in the series have been preached by women. That's on purpose. Uh, There are ways that our women leaders can look at these texts, interpret, and help explain these texts, lift up the stories of these women in these texts in ways that I or other men simply cannot do. And so I'm just so grateful for the way that God designed this beautiful partnership of women and men in the church to work together, this holy, blessed alliance of this partnership that brings together women and men in leadership together, uh, brings clarity, beauty, and uh, understanding to the good news of the gospel in ways that we just cannot do on our own. So I'm just so grateful that we have such gifted women teachers and leaders in our church who are able to bring these stories to us. So let me pray, and then I'll be reading God's word this morning. Father, thank you so much for the good news of your word and this gospel. Thank you for these stories that remind us of the hope that we are waiting for. So we turn our eyes to your word. Pray that you would pour out your spirit on the reading and preaching of your word, that it would be good news for us today, that we would respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear God's word, friends, from 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his general, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rahab, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of his palace, and from his roof, he looked and saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The messenger said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers to get her. 
She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not even go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, David asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why, why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, well, the, the ark and, and Israel and Judah are all staying in tents and my master Joab, the general, and my Lord's men are all camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah again went out to sleep on his mat among his master servants. He did not go home. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to his general and sent it with Uriah. In it, David wrote, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. And then just at that moment, withdraw for him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell and Uriah the Hittite died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after that time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But God saw. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And from Matthew chapter one, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. When I think back on all the times I've read that story or heard that story preached or taught, it's always been through the character of David. And typically, the story is David sins, uh, Nathan confronts David, David repents, and David writes, is restored and writes a beautiful psalm that we all love. And um, today what I want to do is something a little bit different. I want to look at this story through the character of Bathsheba. She's a woman from whom everything is taken. She is the silent victim of David's abuse of power. 
I know this is a disturbing story, but I'm reminded of the insights of theologian Fleming Rutledge. She writes, we forget how utterly unblinking scripture is about human nature. Far from being a collection of inspirational stories, the Old Testament is replete with unedifying R-rated tales of every conceivable kind of crime and villainy, much of it committed by men and women of God's own choosing. Yikes. (laughs) I don't know about you, but her words make me wonder, why does God even bother with us? (laughs) But he does. And that's why Bathsheba's story also is a story of hope. Hope that is rooted in the fact that God sees and he acts on behalf of the powerless and the wounded. And perhaps that's why Matthew includes her in his genealogy. So let's start by setting the scene. In the fall, we had a preaching series on David. What an amazing guy. He'd certainly be on the cover of People magazine. He's good-looking, courageous, patient, faithful, and the most powerful man in Israel. But now, go with them as he usually does. He's home in Jerusalem, and David is not where he should be. One afternoon, he takes a walk on the roof of the palace. Now, in the city like Jerusalem at this time, the palace would have been the highest building, and all the houses around it were lower down. So David's walking, and he strolls and looks down, and he sees a woman bathing. Now, some have pictured this woman as a seductress intentionally trying to get the king's attention. But I want to be really clear about something. She is not bathing on the roof. She's in her private courtyard. David is the only one on the roof. And from his vantage point, he can see her and he watches her. It's a very private moment for this woman. Hers is an act of consecration. She's bathing after her monthly cycle, information that's important for us for two reasons. First, we know that this is a faithful woman. She's careful to keep the Levitical purity laws. And I know that sounds strange to our ears, but. That was the way it was in her world. Second, we know that she's not pregnant. So there's no ambiguity here about the paternity of the child she will conceive. David can see well enough to know that she's very beautiful, but apparently not well enough to see, to know who she is. So he sends someone to find out. The messenger reports back, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Notice that she's identified by her relationships with men. 
In Bathsheba's world, women had no legal rights, nor could they inherit property. Their testimony in court was not valid. Women were completely under the power and authority and protection of their husband or father. So let's look at a moment for a moment at Bathsheba's family. Her father, Eliam, is one of David's elite bodyguards. We learn elsewhere that Eliam's father was Ahithophel, one of David's key advisors. So Bathsheba is part of a powerful and well-known family that has demonstrated long-term loyalty to King David. Bathsheba's husband is Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is one of David's loyal loyal soldiers, and uh, Uriah had been with David all those years ago when he was running from Saul. And here he is, still one of David's faithful soldiers. These men are like a band of brothers, excuse me, deeply committed to one another. But their proven loyalty is not enough to stop David. He knows that not one of them is there to protect this woman. Now, I know commentators differ on this, but I find it hard to see David's treatment of Bathsheba as anything but rape. He wants this very beautiful woman. He sends his messengers to get them, to get her, and Bathsheba is powerless to refuse the king's summons. I hope you're struck by Bathsheba's silence in this scene. The author gives no insight into her as a person. It's almost as though she is simply an object for David's illicit pleasure. He uses her, and then he disposes of her, sending her home. Soon, Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant. She's endured the humiliation and shame of assault. David has cheapened her and broken any trust she may have had in him. Now, she's filled with fear for her own safety. Everyone knows her husband is away with the army. When people find out she's pregnant, they'll assume she's committed adultery, which in that culture means death. Who would believe her if she told anyone what really had happened? For Bathsheba, this pregnancy compounds her sense of powerlessness. But for David, it threatens to expose his sin. So to protect himself, he engages in a heartless cover-up that extends his lies and deceptions to bribery and murder. David instructs Joab to put Uriah where the fighting is fiercest. His plan works, and Uriah is killed. That's one problem out of the way. The next step is to marry Bathsheba. He allows her the week required to mourn for her dead husband, and then he summons her to the palace. And again, she's powerless, unable to refuse, silent. 
The only way she can protect herself and her own unborn child is to surrender and become David's wife. Can you just try for a minute to imagine what that must have been like for her? About six months later, Bathsheba has a son. David no doubt thinks he's in the clear now, but is he really? David may have succeeded in hiding his reprehensible actions from everyone in the court, but he cannot hide it from God. God sees Bathsheba. He sees all that David has taken from her. He calls it evil. And we know that in Scripture, when God sees, God acts. He is not silent. In the next chapter, we read that God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan boldly tells this story to the king. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. The David we once knew burns with anger against the man in this story. And he says to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is incensed by the injustice and cruelty of the rich man's actions. And once Nathan has drawn David in, he springs the trap. You are the man, he tells David. Now, I don't think it's any accident that Nathan tells David a story about a ewe lamb. Remember, David was a shepherd when the Lord first anointed him his king. He knew what it meant to care for and protect his sheep from the wild animals. At his coronation, the people had reminded David that God had said to him, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be their ruler. God had entrusted David with power to care for and protect his people. But in this story, David isn't a faithful shepherd king. He's a man with no pity. He sacrifices Bathsheba on the altar of his lust. He betrays Bathsheba's father and grandfather, and he betrays and murders Uriah. 
I wonder, is this the way you think about King David, a man after God's own heart? Some struggle to accept the fact that David could do such evil. So they blame Bathsheba. Sadly, that's nothing new. If you watch or read the news, you know that people still do this today. When our leaders, even our church leaders, abuse their power, it's easier to blame the victim than to come to terms with the shocking failure of those we trust. It's clear, though, that Bathsheba bears no blame. David alone is responsible for what he's done. And Bathsheba, she's the ewe lamb. She's the innocent one in this scandal. And she'll continue to suffer because of David's abuse of power. As a consequence of his sin, the child she is now bearing will die. And again, she's silent. Perhaps because there's no words that can capture the crushing weight of all that she's lost. Eventually, she will have another son, and that son is Solomon. In a tender moment, the Lord sends Nathan to tell her that God loves this child. Now she knows that God sees her, and perhaps Bathsheba can begin to hope again. What I love about Bathsheba is that she doesn't just fade away. God does not allow the shame, distrust, self-doubt, and grief imposed on her to be the end of her story. We fast forward 20 years. King David is dying. And his older son, Adonijah, sees his opportunity and makes himself king. Nathan goes to Bathsheba and appeals to her, asks her to tell the king what has happened and remind him of his promise to her that her son would inherit the throne. Bathsheba's no longer silent. Nathan is helping her to find her voice. And I imagine that Nathan probably has a really special place in Bathsheba's heart. He spoke truth to David about what he'd taken from her. And now he encourages her to advocate for her son. And without her bold advocacy, the story would have had a very different ending. Adonijah would most certainly have killed Bathsheba and Solomon because they would have been a threat to his throne. We meet Bathsheba one final time in 1 Kings chapter 2, early in Solomon's reign. She's become a woman of influence, and she's also politically astute. Her son shows incredible respect for her when she comes into the throne room. He bows down before her, and then he has his servants put a throne on his right side for her, a position of honor and power. Yes, her role is still tied by her relationship to a man, 
She's Solomon's mother, mother, but her advocacy for her son has actually changed the course of Israel's history. While her suffering and sorrow will always be part of who she is, they are not all she is. Her king, before whom she was powerless, betrayed and violated her. He murdered her husband, and his actions led to the death of her son. But because God saw Bathsheba, silence is not the end of her story. The hope that Bathsheba's story represents is that God sees, and when God sees, God acts. Now maybe we can start to see why Matthew includes Bathsheba in Jesus' genealogy. When his gospel opens, the Jewish people are waiting, waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue them. Matthew is telling the story of how, at last, God comes. And he starts with Jesus' genealogy. He doesn't actually name Bathsheba. He describes her as the mother of Solomon, who had been Uriah's wife. By framing it this way, I think Matthew is reminding his Jewish audience of the scandal of this sordid episode in Israel's history. Without being honest about the depth of sin, even in God's chosen people, his audience would not fully appreciate what God was about to do. If a man like David can't get it right, is there any hope for the rest of us? Matthew's answer is a resounding yes. There is hope because in Jesus, God himself is coming and he will be the faithful shepherd. This shepherd will only use his power for the good of others. He will fearlessly speak truth to power, to those religious leaders who have abused their power and authority and have left the people they were supposed to shepherd as sheep without a shepherd. He will model a kind of radical leadership, leadership that actually is a sign pointing to the coming of God's kingdom on earth. In her book, Redeeming Power, Diane Langberg writes, the natural development of Christ in us is humility, righteousness, and service. The marks of true Christianity are always those of likeness to Christ. And I think with that in mind, I think that's why we need to recognize our leaders, not just by their gifting, but by the content of their character. This shepherd also sees the powerless, the weak, and the vulnerable. He has compassion on them. He will lay down his own life for them, led as a lamb to the slaughter, and he will bear the full weight of betrayal, humiliation, shame, 
and degradation. There are some among us today who have been profoundly wounded. I want you to hear me today. God sees you. Jesus has entered into your suffering. And he will ultimately bring justice, healing, and wholeness. In the meantime, we weep with you who weep, but we weep with hope. Hope that like Pathsheba, woundedness and silence is not the end of your story. So in these final few days of Advent, let's continue to be people who hope, who wait in hope. Our hope is in the God who sees, who has acted through his Son. We wait for the day that John describes in the book of Revelation when we will see the Lamb at the center of the throne, the Lamb who will be our shepherd and lead us to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who sees and who acts. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd and that you rule in truth and grace. And Holy Spirit, would you birth hope in all of our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen.